continuing our series on James and we get to chapter 5 this week and we're talking about patience. So patience, are you patient? I'm patiently waiting for the next slide. So, <laughs> Just in case you can't see, it's a dog saying, come on inner peace, I haven't got all day. We often find patience difficult, don't we? Charles Spurgeon said, patience is a grace as difficult as it is necessary and as hard to come by as it is precious when it is gained. A businessman called Guy Kawasaki said, patience is the art of concealing your impatience. And Margaret Thatcher, who we don't often quote in sermons, said this, I am extraordinarily patient, provided I get my own way in the end. I want to talk to you this morning about something important, something that has affected many of you, is affecting many of you, and will affect some of you in the future. And that's the situation where God promises you something and you have to wait for it to be fulfilled. What do you do while you wait? How do you handle the gap between God promising something and it actually happening? And the same thing might apply if you've been praying for something and it's taking a long time for you to see an answer. Or maybe you've felt called maybe to a particular area of ministry and it seems to be taking a long time for anything to happen. And that's kind of the situation that James was speaking into in chapter 5. Let's look at what he says. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. James is here speaking to Christians who were suffering trials and persecutions, and they were waiting for the Lord to return, for Jesus to fulfill his promise to come back again. Let's just think about waiting. Because I think we live in a very impatient culture. And me being part of the culture, I'm just as impatient as everybody else. I get impatient if a web page takes more than a couple of seconds to load. (laughs) Forgetting that, isn't it absolutely extraordinary that I've got this vast array of information just a couple of clicks away, but somehow I don't appreciate it when it's taking too long, or I think it is. Or my commuter train is delayed by more than a couple of minutes. It's annoying, but in the overall scheme of things, does it really matter? And in our instant culture, that sometimes knocks on so that we end up thinking that maybe spiritual things should happen instantaneously. Let's just think for a moment about a very different sort of world, a world in which spiritual things did happen instantly, where every prayer you prayed was answered answered immediately where every promise you received from God was fulfilled straight away. Sounds fantastic, doesn't it? Or does it? 
Because if everything came about instantly, how would we learn to persevere? How would we learn patience? You would never really need to trust in God despite the circumstances. You would never need really any faith at all because everything is happening instantly. But God wants us to trust in him and depend on him because it produces something within us. There's often in the Bible a process that goes on of waiting on God, trusting in him and depending on him. In this passage of James, he gives the analogy of farming. And of course with farming, there are no instant results. You have loads and loads of hard work at the beginning, and then you have to wait patiently, and then there's even more hard work at the end. And uh, in fact, James breaks it down even more and says that there's key stages when you're really dependent on God. You're depending on God for the autumn rain to come and soften the ground, and you're depending on the spring rain to come and grow the crop. Nothing instant. But it's hard to wait. But we're in good company, because when you go through the books of the Bible, you can see that many heroes and heroines of faith also had to wait for what God had promised. James in this passage mentions Job, but we're going to spend a bit of time looking at another Old Testament figure who had to wait, Abraham. And we're going to look at three features of the promise that he was given. First of all, that clarity comes over time. Second, there's a bit of a reality check. And third, there's a gap between promise and fulfilment. So first of all, clarity comes over time. The first time we read of God speaking to Abraham, or Abram as he was then known before God renamed him, is in Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country. Just say, is this very boomy? Would I be better with the handheld? Is this all right? Okay, thanks. The Lord has said to Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What a fantastic promise. How amazing. But at the same time, there's no clarity about how God's going to bless Abraham. There's no direction as to what he has to do or anything. And sometimes God promises us something or gives us a sense of calling to something. And we don't have very much clarity. And actually, that's a perfectly natural and biblical state. Because actually, over time, God gives Abraham more clarity. So in the next chapter, Genesis 13, God speaks to him and says that, he will give him children like the dust of the earth. And we may find over time that God speaks to us and then gives us more clarity over time. But there's a reality check. In Genesis 15, there's another conversation between Abraham and the Lord. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. And Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, What can you give me, since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. 
Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. It dawns on Abraham that there's a problem, a reality gap between the promise he's got from God and his current reality. He's been promised offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky, but at this current time, he's got no children at all. And again, it's often, not necessarily always, but often the case that there's a gap between what God has promised us and what we're seeing in our current reality. And sometimes that gap can feel like it's getting wider and wider. But it's often part of the process we have to go through. And then, where I want to really get to is to talk to you about the gap. The time when nothing seems to be happening. So let's look at Genesis 16 and 17. The context is that Abraham and his wife Sarah have got so frustrated about not having children that they've tried to force something to happen by getting Abraham to sleep with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, which, as we'll see, is a terrible, terrible idea. So, so Hagar bore Abraham a son, and Abraham gave the name Ishmael to the son she had borne. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. And then moving on to Genesis 17, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Now just look at that. I find Genesis 16 verse 17 one of the most intriguing verses in the Bible. Look for it carefully. You're right. There isn't one. And yet there's 13 years that goes by from the end of 16 to the beginning of 17. There's absolutely nothing recorded, no sense of God speaking to Abraham during that time, nothing momentous happening that is recorded. And so we just get this big black space on the screen and a white space in your Bible. That's what I find so intriguing. And it may be that for some of you, you feel like you're in that verse. There's a big white space and nothing seems to be happening. When we're waiting for what God has promised us, when we're waiting for God to answer our prayers. And I want to talk to you this morning about how we handle the gap, that very, very difficult phase. And we're going to take some things from the passage in James and some things from the story of Abraham, which I hope will help us if we're waiting for the Lord to do what he's promised us. So first of all, four don'ts, and then when and how fulfillment comes, and then we're going to look to the one who promises. So four don'ts. First of all, don't grumble to others, but express your frustration to God. James 5 verse 3 says, don't grumble, sorry, verse 9 says, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. When things aren't happening for us, we can end up getting so frustrated, we end up complaining to others about things, or even complaining about other people. Sometimes we can end up blaming other people for the fact that things aren't happening. And yet, if God has promised something, Who's going to be able to stand in his way, as we were saying in our worship? The Bible encourages us to take our frustrations to God. Take our complaints to him. 
The phrase how long occurs 19 times in the Psalms alone. Psalm 13 says, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? God wants us to express our frustrations, but express our frustrations vertically to him, to pour out our hearts to him. And then when we do that, we're in this place of just connecting with him, pouring it all out to God, and then that allows a place where that peace of God can come and meet with us. The problem we get into is if we don't do that, then sometimes our frustration builds up and it explodes vertically to other people. And it all comes out in a big mess, sometimes in a completely different context. But you snap at somebody and it's not really about what they've done. It's about the fact that you're feeling frustrated. So do express your frustrations, but express them vertically to God and also find some trusted friends to go and talk to. Next, don't try to force things to happen, but keep putting yourself in a situation where God can move. Abraham and Sarah, very understandably, get frustrated with the fact that it's taking a long time for there to be an answer. And they must have thought, well, nothing's happening. We obviously need to do something drastic. And so they try to force things by getting Abraham to sleep with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. And surprise, surprise, it causes all sorts of problems. When we're waiting for God to fulfill a promise, we can sometimes end up getting so frustrated we do something drastic. Now, it could be that God speaks to you and directly tells you to do something radical, then it may be okay. But we need to be very, very careful. And I think sometimes Abraham and Sarah obviously thought this was a good idea. I don't know how they came up with that, but they did. Whereas if they had come to you for advice and they said, oh, we're getting frustrated with this, um, we're thinking about Abraham sleeping with, with Hagar, you'd have said, don't do that, that's a crazy idea. You're going to cause yourself so many domestic problems, it's just awful. It's obvious sometimes these things from the outside, not so obvious from the inside. So if you're thinking, if you're getting frustrated and you're thinking, oh, I need to do something radical, please, please go and talk to somebody and that you trust, and also don't get annoyed if from their perspective it doesn't look such a good idea. Spurgeon says, patience saves a man from a great deal of haste and folly. But on the other hand, patience isn't passivity. So Abraham and Sarah still needed to take action for God to fulfill his promise. Let's be blunt about it. They still had to continue to have sex even though Sarah was past the normal childbearing age. Patience does not mean passivity. We still need to put ourselves in a situation where God can act. Next, don't feel the delay is down to you. When it takes a long time for a promise to be fulfilled, we can end up thinking, did I do something wrong? If I was a better Christian, then this promise would have been fulfilled ages ago. And I want to answer that, I want to spend a few moments thinking about Abraham. See, Abraham is very much a hero of our faith, and he is. 
But at the same time, as you read through Genesis, you realise that actually he had an awful lot of faults and failings. So in Genesis 12, he isn't honest about who his wife is. They go to Egypt, and he's, Abraham's afraid of the Egyptians, so he tells them that Sarah is his sister. Now, it's not a complete lie, because she is a distant relation, but it's really not a great thing to do, and it gets him into trouble. Then, as we've seen in Genesis 16, he tries to force the fulfilment of God's promise by sleeping with Hagar, and that causes more problems. Next, when Hagar gets pregnant, instead of saying, and there's domestic discord, surprise, surprise, instead of saying, this is a mess I have created, I need to do anything I can to resolve this, he just kind of washes his hands of it. He says to Sarah, I'll just do whatever you think. So he's not a role model in many respects. And yet, God gave him what he promised. Because it's not about you, it's not about how good a Christian you are. It's about the faithfulness of the one who gives the promise. 2 Timothy 2 verse 13 tells us, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Even if you mess up, and to be honest, everybody does, even if you take some wrong turnings in your life, and everybody does, he is faithful. So does that mean, oh, so it doesn't matter what I do, I can do whatever I like and God's still going to fulfill his promise. Well, no, we've got to be really careful because as we've seen, Abraham, when he took wrong turnings, there were consequences and he had to live with those consequences. So we have to be careful that while we're waiting, we still behave in a godly way and make good choices. Next, don't lose heart but stand firm. If you're waiting for a while, sometimes it, you can begin to lose heart. I became a Christian at 19, and at, by the age of 20, I knew that I was called to be an elder. And when by my mid-40s that hadn't happened, I slightly lost heart. Oh, it's not going to happen. And to be honest with you, that led me for a little bit of time to be a bit sloppy in my personal spiritual life. James 5 tells us to be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Hold on, the Lord will come through for you. And it's so important that we remain godly while we wait. The key is to keep believing that God can do what he's promised us. In Romans 4 verse 1 it says this, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he'd promised. It wasn't about Abraham's goodness. No, as we've seen, it's that he had many faults. But it's about the fact he continued to trust that the one who promised him a child could do what he promised, despite the circumstances. A Bible commentator called Douglas Moo says this, Paul's point in Romans is not that Abraham was a perfect person or never had any doubts at all, but that this, but his heart attitude was consistently one of faith and hope in the promise of God. It's not about ignoring reality. 
It's about accepting your current reality, but also still believing that God is able. God is able to come and to change things. Next, we're going to look at when and how fulfillment comes. First of all, God's timing may well be different to ours. Often when God gives you a promise, you start immediately forming some idea of when you think God is going to fulfill that promise. The readers of the book of James were looking forward to the Lord returning, and they thought that was going to be imminent. But Isaiah 55 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. My personal experience is that God's timing is often slower than I thought it would be, and occasionally it's quicker, but it's hardly ever in the time that I thought it was, which shows you how my lack of wisdom. As I said, I knew I was called to eldership when I was 20, and I suppose I expected that I would be a leader by the time I was 30, but in fact, I became an elder just a couple of months short of being 50. So uh, it took 30 years. But now when I look back, I can see the wisdom in God's timing. And I think it's not helpful if we put expectations around the timescales that we think God is going to meet because we can often be disappointed. It's better to just say, Lord, I just trust in you that you're going to fulfill this in your timing. Spurgeon said, patience, patience. You are always in a hurry. But God is not. And next, the fulfillment of the promise may be different to what you thought it would be. Imagine being Abraham, and this promise from God comes that your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky. You would project 30 years into the future, you would think, well, I'm going to be surrounded by kids and grandkids. It's just going to be this one huge, enormous family. And yet, Abraham and Sarah only had one child together. So, that doesn't sound like very much, does it? That doesn't sound very special. But think about where he started. Romans 4 says that Abraham is the father of all who believe. If you total up the number of Christians in the world today, it's around 2 billion. That sounds to me like a galaxy of spiritual children. So not much seemed to happen in Abraham and Sarah's lifetime, but think of what they started. Think of what it grew to. And it can be the same to us. We can be sometimes feel disappointed at what we've seen God do in our lifetime and what we've seen so far, but it's what we've started that's important. Sometimes in the Bible you'll notice that the fullness comes later. So, for example, David has this wonderful vision of building a temple. Great idea, definitely of God, but it's his son Solomon that actually builds it. You might have heard of a guy called George Muller who established a number of Christian orphanages. He began to pray for a group of five friends. After five years, one of them came to Christ. After 10 years, two more of them came to Christ. He prayed for 25 years and the fourth man was saved and the fifth man was saved a few months after George Muller died. For that fifth friend, George Muller had prayed 52 years. 52 years, that's patience and perseverance. 
In fact, you can see in modern history how the fullness can come later. The other evening, Kath and I were watching a really great film called Selma. It's a film about Martin Luther King and about how uh, Dr. King and others led a march in 1965 from Selma to Montgomery in Alabama in the United States with ultimately about 25,000 people. And it was a milestone in protesting for civil rights. And Dr. King saw some progress in civil rights in his lifetime until he was tragically assassinated in 1968. But the reality, the facts, the fullness really came to pass 40 years later in 2008 when Barack Obama was elected the first black president of the United States, something that really was pretty unimaginable in 1968. Now, Obama's election certainly hasn't ended racism in the US, sadly, but Dr. King would probably have felt that much of his dream was fulfilled by that election 40 years after he died. The fullness came later. What we need to do in the gap is to look to the one who promises. The value of the promise depends on the person giving you the promise. So in our recent general election, we weighed up the promises of each political party against their personality, their track record, and whether they would really have the resources and the power to be able to do what they said. So I'll leave it to you as to just how much confidence you had in those promises. But God's promises are from one who we can depend upon completely. He's completely trustworthy. 1 John 1.5 says, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. 1 Corinthians 1.20 tells us that no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. While we're waiting, it can be pretty tough, particularly while we're in the gap, when we haven't heard God speak to us or seem to move things along for us, possibly for years. And in that time, we need to hold on to the character of God. This passage in James tells us that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. I wonder sometimes if we get a bit over-familiar with the idea that Lord, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. As if God has sort of nice feelings about us, a bit like some nice uncle who sometimes sends us some money at Christmas, you know. But it doesn't, we don't really affect his life by that much. But in fact, in the original Greek in this passage, it's really talking about God being moved from the gut, a really deep emotional feeling towards you. The Greek word is comparable to Hebrew words that are used to describe some pretty intense feelings. And we can take from that, that how God feels about us. Two stories from the Old Testament that use similar words. One is when Joseph is reconciled with his brother Benjamin, who hasn't seen for years. And he is so moved, he runs from the room weeping. That's the level of emotion that God feels for us. Or you remember the story about Solomon where he's pretending he's going to cut a baby in half because two women are in dispute over who the real mother is. And the real mother says, no, don't do that. The, the, word, the Hebrew word for the emotion she's going through at, the moment, at that moment is similar to what God feels towards you in this Greek that's in James. He cares about you passionately and deeply. When we're waiting, it can feel agonizing. It really can. But God cares for us. He is faithful and he will deliver. 
And he is alongside you in this time of waiting. But he's wanting to produce something very, very powerful in us. Patience and perseverance. I want to spend a few moments talking about us as a church. Because while I was preparing this, I felt that God wanted to speak to us from the story of Abraham. And I think that we as a church have been an Abraham church. Abraham's first name before God renamed him. And Abraham means exalted father. He was respected in the community, but he didn't have any children to speak of. And I think that we've been a bit like that as a community. We have a lot of respect from other churches. Many people have gone out from this church and been key people in other churches. We have the respect of many other churches. But I believe that God is renaming us as Abraham, father of many. I believe that this is going to be a season where God extends the family and there's going to be growth. I want, first of all, to commend many of you who over years you've shown patience and you've shown perseverance in serving. Sometimes for years, sometimes even for decades, really pouring yourself out. And there have been some periods in this church where we've just had to keep going and we haven't actually seen a lot happening. But I believe that this is now going to be a season where we experience growth, where we're going to look round and we're going to see that across our venues there is growth, that God has extended the family. And if you think about it, every new birth is an absolute joy, but it's also incredibly disruptive. Think about what it's like in a household when they have a new baby. Everything gets turned upside down. And suddenly you realise that you've got to reorganise where everything is in the house and maybe you need to change your car because it's not big enough anymore because the family's growing. And I believe that there will be a godly disruption for us as well because if we get new birth into this, into this church, we're going to need to make some changes. But I believe that God is saying that the promises that he's spoken maybe over decades, I remember some of them in the, in the 80s about us being a large church affecting boroughs that God is faithful to his promise. This passage is addressed to Christians who are waiting for the Lord's return. And one day, the Lord Jesus will return in glorious majesty. And every longing in our heart will be fulfilled. Because he will wipe every tear from your eyes and there will be no more mourning or crying or pain. And we long for that day, but until then, until we see other promises fulfilled, we will show patience and perseverance. Spurgeon said, patience then, believer, eternity will right the wrongs of time. And Joyce Mayer said, patience is not the ability to wait, but how to act while you're waiting. 